I have the honor of doing a fireside chat with someone that um, I didn't know until about four years ago. Uh, I only knew him from what I read about him and his amazing career as the founder of Sun Microsystems. But this entrepreneur turned venture capitalist, turned rogue venture capitalist, entrepreneur, transforming healthcare. But this man, Vinod Kosla, is so unique in his thinking, so unique in his mindset, so timely right now because he thinks different than almost every venture capitalist and investor investing in this sector. And our first visit with Vinod, we had left five minutes for questions out of uh, about 30 minutes. Uh, that wasn't enough, everybody wanted more. So the next year we had him back here at JP Morgan and we left 10 or 15 minutes, and then the next year people asked for more, so we left 20. Uh, today, I'm gonna to try to dedicate at least half of our time together to questions from all of you, to ask questions to Vinod, because what I know you're gonna see, which is what I see, is a man who has risen above any of the noise of everything from healthcare reform, to CPD codes, to the way everybody else looks at funding entrepreneurs transforming healthcare. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in a warm welcome for Mr. Vinod Kosla. Thanks, and thanks everybody for being here. I'll try and live up to that <laughs> uh, bombastic description. <laughs> well, it, it, it's, it's, it's true. I mean, anybody who has spent time with you, Vinod, um, read about you, watched you, whether it was on television, or do one of your many talks, knows that you're just a refreshing uh, visionary investor who um, I think for any entrepreneur pitching an investor, a VC or an angel, um, you're almost the dream because you're not focused on the noise of today, um, how they're gonna make money today, how they get reimbursed. Um, tell us a little bit about, for those who haven't seen you talk before, how you think about your role as an entrepreneur slash investor helping transform healthcare? Um, let me first start by saying I don't think I've ever called myself a venture capitalist. I say I'm a venture assistant trying to assist entrepreneurs. There's a difference. Uh, I've never actually calculated an IRR in making an investment. Uh, we don't even let people calculate IRRs in our fund, uh, only because they're mostly misleading, because you can't predict things accurately enough. Um, entrepreneurship is a hard business, and entrepreneurs need advice and help and hand-holding and bantering, brainstorming, arguing. And the best ventures come out of that, and I think that's really the important process. Part of that is not to, to build something truly exceptional. Uh, you can't build a company based on norms that are already established. So if you sort of look and say, I need medical expertise to do this because I'm in medicine, that's the wrong assumption. And so having your own opinions matters a lot in building significant companies. It's a detriment 
when you're trying to build marginally innovative uh, companies, but with good returns. I think you can do returns in many different ways. I happen to pick a way I like more, which is to try and be radically different in throwaway assumptions. And you mentioned things we were talking earlier. I never look at CPD codes, whether something's billable, what the business model is. I fundamentally try and look at where's the value add in this? What's new and different? Um, the, the healthcare startups I hate are the ones who help people increase their billing. Well, that's zero value add from my point of view. And uninteresting, uh, not that it's a bad business. There's, people will make money at it. It's just not one I enjoy spending time. So, you know, just thinking differently and taking your role differently. I like to be in the business of taking entrepreneurs with great talent and great ideas and helping them increase the probability of success. So, what's the dead giveaway, right? You get an email, either an introduction, a cold email, someone approaches you at the Startup Health Festival. What's the dead giveaway between an entrepreneur who's actually piqued your interest and an entrepreneur who's actually you're trying to avoid? Um, you know, it's, um, it's amazing now. On a typical weekend, I'll go through 30, 40 pitches. Uh, and I can tell usually in 30 seconds which are the ones I want to look through more. Uh, the language people use, the way they position it, what they prioritize in their deck, uh, tells me how they're thinking about the world. And it's pretty easy. Uh, and there's things, and I, you know, I'll give a word of caution. I like one set of things, but there's other people in our partnership who like different kind of things. Uh, and there's lots of room. And there's other VC firms that maybe are very successful, even more successful at monetizing and getting returns um, that you can do in many different ways. So I don't want to poo-poo any other way of doing it. I'm just saying I'm interested in one particular thing, one style of innovation that's radical, large, and significant, and doesn't fit into today's practice. So. I'd rather not make a clinic more efficient. I'd rather start a new one that has a radical set of assumptions behind it. To give you an example, we have a new company we announced next week, uh, opening primary care clinics. Radically different, called Forward. We'll hear more about it next week. I can't talk too much about it. Uh, but that's much more interesting. It's a team that worked in the AI group at Google, has no healthcare experience. To me, that's great. The, the, the Google part, the no healthcare experience part, or the radical thinking about not coming in with just some tweaks to what's currently out in the market? Um, the last two. Um, coming out with something that isn't a tweak, and no healthcare experience is generally an advantage, not a disadvantage. Uh, let me postulate the following. No large innovation has come within a system. Tesla didn't come out of the automotive industry. SpaceX didn't come out of Boeing or Lockheed. And by the way, GM spent billions of dollars trying to do electric cars before Tesla. More money, more resources, more knowledge, too much knowledge. Um, 
Walmart didn't innovate retail, Amazon did. NBC and CBS didn't innovate media, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube did. Um, uh, pharmaceuticals, um, I, I, I joined Kleiner in the 80s. Genentech didn't come out of pharma. It came out of an associate who was a, a guy who was an associate, Bob Swanson, at Kleiner. Uh, so I'm hard pressed to think of one major innovation that came out of an existing industry. Uh, the closest I can come to think of, because I've tried hard, maybe somebody can give me a better example, was Bank of America doing credit cards in the early 70s. Uh, other than that, where's the large innovation come from people who know an area? Because you have to start thinking from scratch. So we, we first met, uh, it was I think at Datapalooza 2013 or 14. Um, how, has, how have things changed over the past couple years with that kind of radical thinking? Because it seems like as an industry gains traction with funding and grows, especially the way digital health and health care has changed, um, a lot of group think occurs. People start trying to fit into the mold of what gets funded. What's changed over the past couple of years since we first met? You know, um, probably four years ago, if I talked about digital health and AI in health and analytics in health, people, one, took it very incrementally uh, and assumed that the role of humans would not change. It was unthinkable. And so I'd suggest go back four years. I think I first gave a talk at Rock Health where I said, hey, we don't need doctors for most of what they do or 80% of what doctors do. And it got such radical reaction. Today, most people accept that. Nobody argues that radiology will be replaced uh, with 80% machine algorithms, or pathology will be replaced by that, or dermatology will be replaced by that. People are starting to believe that 50% of cardiology will be replaced, or 50% of, pick your favorite, endocrinology. Uh, right? I analyzed the top 25 medical specialties and was hard-pressed to come up, other than interventional stuff, which is a whole different thing like surgery, um, heart surgery or things. Um, and that's a whole different question because robotics is coming along really in an interesting way there. But I was hard-pressed to think about where the role of humans wouldn't change dramatically. Do you, do you say that from the perspective of everyone's coming around to your thinking, or do you continue to believe that ultimately the technology, the data, the, the things that now are possible have shifted? Like I'm just trying to figure out how you think about they're jumping up to you, or are things changing? Um, you know, I never pretend to know what's going to happen. I would say you can directionally say this is what should happen, um, and you can say it's, this is possible, but how long it takes, always unpredictable. The directions it takes. Um, I, I give an example. In 2004, when cell phone, when iPhone didn't exist, and phones were self, even cell phones were mostly used for talking, I gave a talk called the device that used to be a phone. 
and nobody believed that a phone would be used mostly for things other than talking. By the way, this talk from 2004 is on our website. It's embarrassingly bad, so I leave it up there. And it's embarrassingly bad for the following reasons. Every use I imagined was dead wrong, right? But the direction that you wouldn't use it for speaking was exactly right. So I think directional trends which are enabled by technology you can predict, but how it shows up, whether it shows up uh, uh, in a Tesla or somewhere else, very hard to predict. And frankly, this is where all of you who are entrepreneurs have great power. Tesla, electric cars wouldn't have happened if Elon hadn't made it happen. And so much of the change is enabled and possible through technology, but then it takes a bulldog entrepreneur to make it happen. And I bet in 2012, the Department of Energy made a forecast for the number of electric cars in 2030 in the United States. The number for 2030 was lower than the cars that Tesla alone shipped this last year. Think about it. They tried to make an 18-year-out forecast that was exceeded in three years because one guy made it happen. Now, my bet is if Elon hadn't come along, that forecast would have been right. So all of you entrepreneurs have tremendous power to change things and make a new world happen. So basically, it's not the technology, it's not the time, it's the entrepreneur. Well, I call it the power of ideas fueled by entrepreneurial energy. It's a concept I just love. Think about it. Great ideas always exist. They're possible. Lots of people talk about it. But talk is cheap. But you add entrepreneurial energy, zeal, and persistence, and foolishness to it. Uh, and because you've got to be foolish to attempt to do things like, hey, I'll create a new car company, or I'll change all of medical practice. Right? And I'll eliminate 80% of what doctors do. That's foolish. But that foolishness and that vision is what causes change to happen. It may not happen the way you planned it. It'll happen some other way. But that's, that's the power of entrepreneurship and power, uh, entrepreneurial energy. So last year, uh, in fact, I reminded you, you were in the middle of, of reading uh, Carol Dweck's book, Mindset. And in fact, Startup Health was in the beginning of revamping our whole program to reinforce these mindsets that entrepreneurs need, not just for themselves, but to be on the lookout for within the partners they choose and within the startups and the teams they build. Um, I want to talk for uh, just a couple of minutes here and then open up to questions about the power of the entrepreneurial mindset. Go back, you talked about Elon, you talked about this notion that it is about the entrepreneur, whether it's blissful ignorance, long-term commitment, or just the sheer conviction, confidence, and ambition that grows with time doesn't decrease with time. Um, I think that's exactly right. Um, I'd add one more element. Luck plays a big role. Um, entrepreneurship, you can do the right things. And it's a probabilistic thing. And by getting the right help and advice, you can increase the probability of success. Uh, but you also need luck. Uh, I have a presentation on our website called Entrepreneurial Roller Coaster. I did the original presentation of all things in 1986. 
Uh, I've updated it a little bit, but not a lot. And I, I talk about the role of Lady Luck. Yeah, um, you know, in my life, the biggest thing I've done right is court Lady Luck. Uh, it, it makes a huge difference. And sometimes when entrepreneurs are struggling with an idea, I say, hey, figure out how to stay alive long enough as a struggling entrepreneur to give luck a chance to help you. And some companies that just survive and hang on and, um, and just last longer get lucky, especially if they're open-minded. Now, let me tie this back into, in reinventing things, you really need to think fresh if you're gonna do things differently. And that's where getting too many people in healthcare, in a healthcare startup, really starts to hurt the startup. Uh, um, I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, LiveCore is an interesting company. A lot of people know about it. Uh, a year ago in November, for the first time we said, uh, we were looking for a new CEO, um, and, and I wasn't on the board. I said, I'm gonna go on the board and help hire a CEO. And I told the recruiter, I wouldn't meet anybody who had ever worked in healthcare. Why? Uh, only because they'd bring the wrong mindset. We'd had a healthcare CEO before. They were thinking about how to fit into cardiology practice. When the product, I thought, and the founder, uh, Dave is just an amazing inventor, wanted a very different product. Accessibility mattered. 99.99% if you're a cardiac patient, you're not with your cardiologist. He wanted to address that 99.99% of the time, not the 1.01% of the time you're sitting with your cardiologist. Um, and, and it was very hard to get healthcare professionals to look past that. They kept trying to fit business models and all kinds of other things. Um, and finally, we got somebody out of Google who had never worked in healthcare. He put together a team, most of whom had never worked in healthcare, and the company is doing amazingly well today. And they've been reinvented itself into a really interesting company. I love it, and invent, reinventing themselves. We have microphone runners for questions. Up, oh, we got here, and on this side, uh, we can start right now, and there's a question hand right in the middle, Jenna. We're actually, um, if we can start, we asked um, on Twitter if anybody had questions for you. So we'll start with one, and then we'll go to the... On Twitter? Um, yes. Oh, okay. So uh, Denise Terry had a question. How will AI augment or improve quality of care from human doctors? Um, the best way to eliminate quality of care for human doctors is to eliminate the doctor element for most encounters. Um, it's, it's very simple. Uh, let's, um, um, uh, Greg was here, I was talking to Todd Park last year, and he said the median cancer patient in the U.S. does not get the quality of cancer care that a med school student would know to provide today. Think about it. Now add to that the fact that there's thousands and thousands of relevant articles published in the last year that are relevant to treatment in a rapidly changing and important area like uh, uh, oncology. It's not conceivable that a human can keep up with it. That's not to say there's no role for the human, don't mistake me. But trying to say a human being 
can keep up with all this information and pick the best course for a particular thing, for a particular uh, cancer. It's just plain silly. So how do you improve the quality of care? You admit that and say, let the human do what humans do well, and let the machine do what the machine can do well. Um, diagnostic error can be dramatically reduced. Um, give you a sense of the level of diagnostic error. And I have a 110-page document, for those of you who haven't seen it, called 20% Doctor Included on our website. There's a long PDF there. The quality of care today in the United States, which, by the way, is better than it has ever been in the United States or anywhere else in the world. So it's really good care compared to what we've had. I'm not critiquing it. But the error rate is about the same as if Google was allowed to have a driverless car that only had one accident a week. I'd be surprised if your median physician in the United States today doesn't have one major, major misdiagnosis a week. Think about it. How do you improve that? Bionic assist. AI systems that have the knowledge, that have the time to ask the three extra questions and let the physician do what the physician does well, which is the human element of care. Right? In fact, two years ago, I recommended to the dean of Harvard Medical School that they change the admissions criteria to more closely match the admissions criteria of the USC Film School. Why? Because USC Film School selects for mirror neurons and empathy and the human element and the connection, uh, not highest IQ, which is what Stanford Med School or Harvard Med School select for. That part, the Dr. House part, that brilliant diagnostician with bad manners, that part systems can do. There's things humans can do well. And I think that's how you improve the quality of care. I love it. I love it. We got a question back here. We got a question over here. When, so number one, number two over here. Okay. Uh, hi, Vinod. Uh, Patrick Leonard um, with ListenMD. And I think we actually met a few years ago when I was at iTriage. Um, and I think you were really getting going in healthcare. So thanks for being here. My question is... I still don't know much about healthcare. I just have <laughs> opinions. Well, apparently that gives you a leg up, right? Um, so my, my question is, with, with all the, the innovations that we're talking about around AI and other things, how do you see this moving into the developing world over the next decade? You know, the developing world is the greatest opportunity because you put a doc's expertise in a cell phone. So let me give you, let me start, I'll come back to this question. Let me give you an example of what Michael Bloomberg is doing. He's taking, so in Tanzania, there's one doctor for every 50,000 people. You need, during pregnancy, a C-section, it's a death sentence. Essentially, if you need a C-section, you're very likely to die. So what Michael Bloomberg is doing in Tanzania is training high school graduates with a year's worth of training to do C-sections. Okay? Now, you can upskill people. Add to that all the expertise that a great decision support system can do and think of a nurse with one or two years uh, post high school of familiarity with terms, symptoms, 
what I call the ontology of medicine, right? Or the vocabulary in more simple terms. And a decision support system like DXplain has a consumer vocabulary and a medical vocabulary, and there's a one-to-one correspondence. You could upskill them to make most decisions. In 1% of the cases, they could actually say, hey, I can't handle that, or maybe 5% of the cases. Let me escalate it to, um, to the hospital in, in Nairobi. Uh, that is what's going to happen. It's a form of triage, but most things can be handled adequately locally and much better than they're done today with these AI systems. And then at the right time, you triage people up to critical care. That nurse isn't going to do bypass surgery, but, and they, you will need that. And if you need oncology treatment, maybe they can, maybe they can't. And in fact, the practical fact is, most oncology treatment is not affordable, even if you knew what to do. Then you have to say, what's almost as good, what's second best, what's third best? What can you afford? Uh, so absolutely humongous potential overseas. Thanks. Hold on one second. We got a microphone right coming. Sayyad Hamdani, DNA Mito. A little closer here. Oh, Sayyad Hamdani, DNA Mito. Welcome. The biggest problem I see here is the business issue, and I can relate to radiation oncology. I, I can relate to radiation oncology. They don't get the best treatment. Let's say a proton machine, which is separate proton centers, and only 1% of patients being treated by that. When this person comes in, they basically treat them with the machines, whether they are a community oncologist or a treatment center. Unless a treatment center has both, they get the best. And that really is hampering the ability to, to deliver the best health care. And the second corollary to that is that we are developing a, a, a saliva-based test for radiation sensitivity so we can stratify the patients, whether they can put kind of personalized treatment. The problem is where should we apply that assay early? or we should apply during the treatment and we get hampered by the same problem and all. So that's my... So I'm not sure I understand your mm. question, but let me try and answer that. Um, I'll give you um, an example. So proton beam accelerators, which is what I think you were referring to, is your classic marketing boondoggle to increase medical expenses. Um, you know, if budget is not something relevant to you, maybe you can afford it. But it's a marketing tool for medical institutions. It's not a cost-effective tool today. I think an installation costs well over $100 million to get a proton beam accelerator. Maybe it's $200 million. Yeah. It's not relevant to medicine at scale. Let me give you the opposite end of that. We have a little company called Baylabs which says, hey, you do need to do a cardiac echo. You need a cardiac echo technician. What if you used AI to say any nurse with two hours of training can do an echocardiogram? And oh, by the way, when you're done, the interpretation of the echocardiogram can be done by an algorithm. And Bay Labs is working on it. That suddenly reduces the cost of an echocardiogram from hundreds of dollars to thousands of dollars to maybe tens of dollars. That's a great example of using AI, traditional, reasonably trained nurse, 
to do something they wouldn't otherwise be able to do because the AI is providing bionic assist and teaching them how to do cardiac, cardiac echograms, which today takes a trained technician. If you need a trained technician, you can't have 24 by 7 service. You can't have weekend service. You know, heart attacks or uh, cardiac events happen all the time, and you need that in every community. It should be like a defibrillator. So that's one example. You mentioned something else that's really, really interesting to me. You mentioned a saliva test. You know, a saliva test for 100 biomarkers reduced to chip scale technologies should be five bucks. That means long before you decide whether you want a ZPAC, you should do that test any place. Now, it's not there today because it's not part of medical practice, so nobody develops it. This goes back to if you have great entrepreneurs, they define the vision. I'll reduce the cost of a saliva test to, to five bucks or ten bucks and make it available at every Walgreens since 75% of the U.S. population lives within five miles of Walgreens. Um, and before they do anything, they know whether it's viral, bacterial, some other somber uh, thing. And yeah, saliva isn't as accurate as blood, but most biomarkers in the blood are in saliva at different dilutions and sensitivities, but you can do pretty damn good with that. So those are examples of things where revolution is entirely possible if some entrepreneur decides to do that. Yeah, it's hard to hear you. Sorry, I apologize. Why don't we go to the next we, question? We have another question from Twitter. This is from Rasu, who I think is here. I'm the Chief Innovation Officer at UPMC. Do you want to ask your question then? Vinod, um, Rasu Shrest, I'm the Chief Innovation Officer at UPMC. Physician by background, radiologist actually, so. <laughs> I know, right? Um, <laughs> UPMC is doing some pretty good. Thank you. Uh, I got my master's in biomedical engineering in Pittsburgh, so. Yes, that's right. Um, so, listen, um, thank you first and foremost for being such a, uh, a catalyst extraordinaire when it comes to healthcare innovation. Thank you. Um, so, we just celebrated, I think, one or two years ago, the decade of interoperability uh, in healthcare, right? Um, my question to you is do you think, and it's a bit of a redundant question, but do you think it, we've been betting on the wrong horse when it comes to data interoperability? And the real question is what's the answer? So, again, uh, you know, the answer to that is not knowable, but one can speculate. Today's medical systems, systems of record, the EMRs, were designed for billing, they were designed for audit, they were designed for the CIO, they were designed for the CFO. They weren't designed for the practitioner, whether it was the nurse practitioner or the physician. You know, that's why physicians are clamoring for scribes, so they don't have to deal with this other thing that gets in the way that physicians do well, which is the patient interaction. Right? Uh, and the number of times I hear uh, from hospital administrators that they, all their physicians are spoiled because they want scribes. Uh, the physicians are right in that. They want to focus on the eye-to-eye, face-to-face interaction. How might that change? You won't change the billion-dollar EPIC system that UCSF um, 
put in place. I critiqued Bob Walker for trying to defend the Epic installation in his book. A colossal mistake to try and defend it. Having said that, because they've installed it and Stanford's installed the same, they all reinforce each other and they're very comfortable with their decision, my critiquing it isn't going to change it. How might that change? What the physician needs at the point of practice isn't a billing system. It isn't even a system of record. Even if you had the right system, a physician's not going to look at last 10 years of somebody's patient record and say, oh, this history, I got to do this. That's pretty rare. They need a working set, a point of care working set. If somebody developed a good system there that gave them the relevant information and added value to it. So there was a system out of MGH called Cupid, I think, that got bought that physicians adapted crazily but there wasn't a business model around it, and they gave up too early, in my view. I, I would have loved to advise those entrepreneurs on how to go after it and not give up. That system got adapted. We have a little company called Metasauce that does workflow around physician practice. Really interesting how it's being adapted. So some system that focuses on the practitioner at the point of care will suck data out represented differently. One of my f best scientific paper papers is one out of Mount Sinai called Deep Patient. Uh, anybody who's interested in patient records should read it. Completely different reformatting of the patient record into something that indicates what state the patient is that's predictive of either best treatment or course of out. Uh, trajectory a patient's on. So something like that will replace the EMR sometime. It might take a long time, it may take a little, it depends on a great entrepreneur doing it. I wish somebody here takes the initiative. I know how to experiment with it, I don't know how to solve it. More questions? So hands up, right up here up front, Kelly. Oh, right here. <coughs> Who's next after this? Hello, uh, my name is Gary McKenzie. I'm with Cognotion. I'm an interventional cardiologist. And uh, when you first started to speak, naturally I got a little bit defensive. <laughs> and, uh, but I agree with almost everything you said, except perhaps the statement that you probably don't need a cardiologist if you're looking at cardiology startup. I think cardiologists might help. Um, but. Uh, well, LiveCourt has a cardiologist yeah, yeah, but, founder. And, but as, as you started to talk more, I, I, it made more, I was resonating with it a lot more. And instead of saying we could get rid of 80% of doctors, I think doctors would like to get rid of 80% of what they do. So and let, the, and, let and me EMR, be clear. I, I very I press misinterprets yes, exactly. what I say. Yes. I always say, you can replace 80% of what doctors do, not replace 80% of doctors. There's a big difference between uh, those two uh, statements. And uh, in my writing, I'm very precise about that language. So I if think you, you read my that. paper, it talks about 80% yeah, yeah. of the functions, including the administrative functions, well, rather than 80% of doctors. Right, and I think you came to that. And initially, people may have taken it as sort of a, a doctor bashing statement, which of course says one, I had too to many defend. Yale graduates yeah, yeah, don't know the difference yeah, yeah, between yeah, yeah, those two statements. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely, this absolutely. Well, I did because uh, you made it clear. 
but I just wanted to say that uh, we can use you on our side because doctors would love to have you as an advocate because I think uh, what you're stating really makes sense. I worked for a very progressive nonprofit healthcare system in the U.S. where they clearly were against changing the, the standard model of what doctors do. In fact, that's why 60% of physicians are burnt out. And thank you for what you're doing. Um, or is it just no, it's just a statement so because it, I think does, as a doctor, I agree with th what you're saying. There's one comment I want to add to that that's, uh, that's actually fairly pivotal in the evolution of healthcare. Um, to me, what we call data is data that humans can use. And your typical primary care visit still starts with the things that were measurable in the 1800s. Blood pressure, you can put a cuff, you could do that in the 1800s. Pulse rate, breathing, sort of normal things that you can, a human could do. We are well past the time where that's sufficient. If you're gonna have the next level of quality of care, why aren't we doing an RNA gene expression profile uh, before an intervention and saying, what's really going on? What's being expressed? Now, if I give you 300 biomarkers, uh, you're not gonna know as a human being how to look at patterns. And that's where we have to start admitting that there's a lot more data than humans can look at that's valuable to a diagnosis and prescription. And we have to transcend what humans can do. Um, genetics is starting to go there because there is too much data for humans to look at. Every mutation or every um, gene expression or things um, is, is sort of getting well past what we can do. Unfortunately, because of the way healthcare is practiced, we are discouraging the collection of data. So, I can't imagine why, if I'm a patient in a hospital, every morning I don't automatically get a blood test that gives me hundreds of biomarkers. So whether it's sepsis coming on, or some other infection, whether it's viral or bacterial, or my liver acting up, all that should show up every morning. If we had that practice, it's, it's possible today to do technology to do it so cheaply, say under 50 bucks, that compared to the cost of a patient hospital bed, it's dirt cheap and you could dramatically change outcomes. But we don't do it that way. And because that's not practice, not enough entrepreneurs are creating that technology. So I just want to say we want to look past what humans can look at as data. We have microphones back there. Hi, I'm Orundhati Parmar. I'm with MedCity News. Uh, so wanted to not push back, but ask little, you a little closer to your hand. Sorry, wanted to feel free to push back. <laughs> sure, I will do that. So you talked about not being interested in incremental in, uh, innovation. You talked about preferring startups that didn't really know healthcare or come from healthcare. But there are a lot of interesting tools and applications being developed by folks in this room um, that need to fit into clinical workflow. Or do you think the clinical workflow needs to, be, needs to accommodate these changes? How do you respond yeah, to that? Yeah, no, look, you, you make an important point, and maybe I'm making an overstatement, but the, here's my point. 
you want, I want, and I said there's plenty of other startups that make lots of sense, but what I want, what I want to work on, or the entrepreneurs I want to work with, have a radical new mindset. I'll give you an example. I gave you the sepsis example just now. Somebody's actually looking at a pattern of biomarkers to detect sepsis very differently. This is a clinician, but with a very strong data science orientation and background. Right? They're not thinking like a traditional sepsis test. They're thinking, if I were to look at, characterize what the human body is doing, how do I approach it? So it's more the mindset, and this comes back to Carol Tweck's book on mindset. Um, it can come from within the healthcare system. Uh, Eric Topol thinks about cardiology very differently, even though he's a cardiologist. Right? And so it's, you want people who are thinking outside tradition. The fact that they happen to know something about healthcare tends to bias them, but it's entirely possible. Uh. And, you know, one of the things around this mindset is what we've discovered in looking backwards also at what, who's succeeding and who's not is the four levels of a mindset. There's a failure version. There's the frustrated version of the mindset, a little better. Then there's conventional and traditional, which is what you're talking about, which is fine. But then this transformational mindset is just the next level up. And it, if you start to look at mindset with, with that kind of dimension, you can start to see the differences between the way traditional entrepreneurs and traditional venture capitalists think, or investors, entrepreneurs think, uh, than, than those that transform and are working on the moonshots that are going to improve the health and well-being of everyone in the world. Now, I might make one other point. Uh, when I have entrepreneurs who know nothing about healthcare or doing healthcare, I'll usually encourage them to hire people from healthcare under them, as long as the CEO or the founder is thinking differently and challenging them. Understanding how to fit in is important, but it's secondary to the large innovation that the vision should drive. You start fitting too early into conventional methods and business models, and you lose the large innovation. You go from a great idea to a decent idea, and from a great innovation to a minor innovation. We've got another question from yes, Twitter. Yes, another Twitter question. Uh, which will benefit people more, investing dollars in blockchain, better models to get people to stop smoking, or something else? I'm sorry, I didn't get the question. I got to make sure. So what will benefit people more, investing health dollars into blockchain, better models to get people to stop smoking, or something else? <laughs> That's a hard question to answer. Um, I, I think the general idea, um, first, the first thing I'd say is there's lots of things that are valuable to do. Um, I tell entrepreneurs, work on the thing where you can make the largest contribution, even if it isn't the largest problem. You know, if you have expertise in primary care, you, it, it may be you can do more good in oncology, but if you can't leverage your expertise, uh, or your vision, uh, you're not going to make as much of a difference. So I'd say to entrepreneurs, work on what you're passionate about working on, where you want to drive change, and where when things get rough, and every startup goes through really rough patches, you won't give up because you have uh, 
passion for that vision. Uh, having said that, um, it's very hard to say whether blockchain or, uh, or smoking cessation is the right thing to work on. Uh, they're very different. Um, the market does a pretty good job of allocating resources. That's the great thing about the capitalist system is resource allocation. Um, there's also talent allocation um, that happens to go with it. Um, I don't know how to answer that question. Uh, there was that exercise done uh, I'm tired, by a Danish. Uh, Bjorn Lomberg did sort of an exercise where he got a hundred economists together to debate what are the largest social problems to invest in. Uh, I'd say look up that study. They spent a week debating just the question of if you had a hundred billion dollars, how would you allocate it to all the social problems? Uh, it was a good exercise. It's a good way to think. Got room, for, time for another couple questions. Hi, Vinod. Hi, Stephen. Um, most of the innovation conversations are very physician-centric, and 85% of our workforce and our value creation are nurses and social workers. So where are you seeing them and encouraging them to be the entrepreneurs and come up with the solutions that they see right at the bedside and create businesses around those? I'm glad you asked that question because I it's, am too. Thank you. Uh, because... Frankly, people forget that 5% of the world's population is in the U.S. 95% of the population doesn't fall under F FDA or CPD codes or other things. And so if you want global impact, think globally. Uh, one thing that's very clear is you can't create enough physicians in Tanzania to take that example to match the physician-patient ratio here. Um, the good news is the kinds of AI systems, and I covered this uh, in my paper fairly extensively, the term I like to use is you'll upskill a nurse. Why I like the Bloomberg example, he's upskilling high school graduates to do things that are mission critical, saving somebody's life at childbirth if they need a C-section. Uh, I'm pretty certain um, the, a, a simple nurse with two or three years of healthcare training, let alone a nurse practitioner, will be able to do most things that a primary care physician can do because of these systems. And that's the good news. And that's why I think the impact of these systems may be larger globally in less developed parts of the world with fewer skilled physicians. Uh, even in this country, if you look at the average Medicare patient, they probably have seven comorbidities. Now think about it. Your uh, endocrinologist doesn't know about everything your cardiologist knows or everything your, you know, that you're dealing with hypertension has very little to do with sort of your osteoporosis. Um, that integration across specialties can only happen at the primary care physician. And I believe 10, 15 years from now, the most important physician and the only place you will get integrative care is through your primary care physician. 
So this lowly, less respected physician will become the most important physician because he will be up upskilled with all the expertise of the cardiologist or the endocrinologist or take your gastroenterologist. Uh, if you think microbiome is important, that's another interesting area. Um, and, and you'll start to see integrative care delivered through this sort of upscaling model. Uh, skills will be upgraded. You'll have all this knowledge available to you, just like you today don't need to know the population of Saudi Arabia. Google has the answer in 30 seconds or maybe shorter. Uh, that will happen in medicine too. In oncology, the primary care physician will know more than the oncologist does today if he takes the approach of ha having tools to help him decide every latest study. Uh, who's got the microphone over here? Uh, hi, Steve Kinsey from MedStar Health. I'm glad you brought up uh, nursing. I'd love to talk to you about some of the things we're doing with nursing. Anyway, um, so healthcare providers t are By the way, nurses are the best at the human element of care that we talk about. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a hidden resource that will be really upscaled. I, I've spent about 40 hours shadowing nurses over the last three weeks, and it's been amazing. Anyway, um, so healthcare providers tend to do a lot of innovating themselves, Cleveland Clinic, MedStar Health, UPMC. Um, if we should, if healthcare shouldn't be doing the innovating, what is the role of the healthcare provider in uh, innovation, knowing that we're risk averse? Well, not all healthcare providers are risk averse. Uh, plenty of people innovating in different ways. Um, I saw Dean Onish here. Dean, are you still here? Um, uh, I saw him a little bit ago. I think he was in a meeting. Right? Um, here's an interventional cardiologist. And Dean would say you don't need intervention most of the time, probably 80% of the time. And he has pretty good studies to back that up. And, um, and then Deepak Chopra just published a study on gene expression changes when you meditate, right? And the real measurable consequences of that. Now, there's lots of places innovation can happen. And, and look, change depends on 5% of any population set. So independent of whether you're a conservative physician or not, 5% of them are innovators, and then there's people who will be laggards, and then people in the middle who reasonable will follow but won't lead. And I tell people, you just want to be one of the 5%, whether it's a group of physicians or a group of automotive engineers or financial engineers. Uh, there's room for innovation. And I personally like to spend my time with that 5% of any cohort. So I think we've got time for one more question, maybe two, but right back there, the microphone. And then is there one more on this side? Yeah, there's a question back there. Okay, we'll go over here and then over there. Thank you. Uh, Art Linson, Sleep.ai. You talk about radical changes in, uh, in medical. Uh, you talk about uh, physical health. Uh, what about mental health? Uh, do we have examples of radical changes, AI in mental health? Yeah, so today, Today, I believe a phone can better do, do a better job of diagnosing mental health than a psychiatrist can. You know, we have a company called Ginger IO. 
they can predict bipolar episodes coming on better than psychiatrists can. They can predict manic depression, other conditions. Uh, why? Because we interact with our phones so much. Uh, I think the statistic is the average person interacts 190 times a day. And there's a few other hundred, few hundred times a day that you don't interact where the phone knows what you're doing. When you get out of your bed and go to your dining room, the phone knows where your dining room is, where your bedroom is, based on historical patterns. If you text somebody, the phone knows uh, who you text, when you text, uh, where you go on Friday nights for dinner, who you call on Saturday mornings. And if you didn't call your mom, when you usually do, your phone knows. If you take 500 milliseconds or a few seconds longer to respond to a text, it's representative of your mental state. All that data can be used to diagnose mental health. And Ginger Eye is an example. It's version one. Version seven will be way more sophisticated. I actually think, um, and this is another pet area of mine, mental health will be treated with a lot of digital drugs. That means your phone may text your mom or your brother to call you because you're feeling down and prevent your state trajectory from going down to up. Or maybe a baby picture that makes you smile will change your mental trajectory of an episode. I believe there's lots and lots of potential in mental health uh, with digital systems. And I do think digital drugs will do better than chemical drugs with fewer side effects. That's an opinion and speculation, but Ginger I.O. has proven a lot of this. Hi. Who's got the microphone Hi. here? Oh. Hello. Uh, well, um, we have developed the best symptom checker in the world today, so we, may, we share most of your thoughts. Thank you for spreading the word. And, but here we are all today to change healthcare, and we are dealing with an old system that makes things happen slow. What's your recommendation on what we should do tomorrow? to make things happen? Well, um, so symptom checkers are interesting. In fact, uh, my son's working in that area too. Uh, this will evolve, and DeepMind is working with the NHS on algorithms for medicine. And I think that's a really, really promising area to scale expertise and upskill nurses that I talked about. It's a very promising area. Business models are somewhat hard to do, but I wouldn't give up. Uh, but capturing medical knowledge, whether it's in textbooks or in medical records, which is once the practice of medicines, once the theory of medicine, combining them into things like sophisticated system checkers is the start of scaling medical expertise. And I think whether you're talking about primary care medicine or an oncologist or a cardiologist, that's the direction things will go. All right, last question. Uh, make it a doozy. Who's got a good one? All right. Oh, second question. Go ahead. It's yours. What or who has made you the person that you are today? I'm sorry? What or who has made you the person that you are today? Well, I was very lucky to, to not uh, 
to be in circumstances, see, luck plays a huge role. I was very lucky to get into a position where mistakes didn't hurt me. So I was very, very open to trying new things, and it didn't embarrass me when I failed. I, I find most people don't do interesting things because they're afraid to fail, so they don't try things that are high risk. I find, and I like to say, my willingness to fail has what has, what has given me the ability to succeed. Because if you're not going to, f if you hate failing, you're not going to try really risky in things. If they're not risky, they're much more traditional and somebody else is doing it, and you're not going to be radically innovative. So if you sort of get past needing to succeed, you actually have a much higher probability, those statistical, of trying new things and being innovative. And I've always lived my life. I've never applied for a job in my life. Uh, I was lucky. Um, I've never done something traditional. Um, and, um, and, you know, I was fortunate. I never worked for anybody. Um, it just, I was in my early 20s when I decided I'd just try things and it was okay and I wouldn't starve. As long as I could afford a McDonald's meal, that's all I needed. And that's how I thought about my life when I was in my early 20s. And um, it sort of let me try things. I, I, let me finish by saying, and this applies a lot to healthcare. Most people in ventures reduce risk where they increase the probability of success but they make the consequences of success mostly inconsequential. Think about it. I'd much rather increase the probability of success and make the consequences of success more consequential. It's a lot more fun, it's a lot more stimulating, and I'm always interested in new things, and that has worked for me. Thank you all very much.